You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ed Lin is the author of the Taipei Night Market novels. The latest Taipei Market novel featuring Jing Nan is Death Doesn't Forget. Thank you for joining me, Ed. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Ed, now these novels are all set in Taipei, Taiwan. This is a very complicated society. It's a complicated, uh, the social rules are very foreign to me. The politics are really weird. I always thought I kind of knew what Taiwan would be like, which was kind of, you know, maybe like uh, the scene from Blade Runner <laughs> or something. But, I, and there's a temptation to say that the place is a character in novels like this. But I, I, I'm going to reach for a slightly different cliche and say that what you do in this novel very successfully is to world build a society in a place that's so different from America that it's really difficult to comprehend. Talk about doing that with the economy that you do it in. Oh, uh, I would have to say... You know, when, when you hear about Taipei and Taiwan in, in the news, it's often under the guise of like, uh, you know, um, China claims uh, that is the rightful uh, owner of this island or it's a self-governing island or it, it, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, just it you know, like a drumbeat keeps appearing as, you know, China seems ready to invade, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and yet, when when you go to Taiwan, it is actually kind of like um, it, it's it's not only a very peaceful place, but it's a very prosperous place. Um, and uh, you know, over the centuries, uh, a number of empires have you know scraped their their the mud off their boots on on Taiwan in a way. Um, you know, there was uh, Imperial China. Uh, and then when Imperial China lost a war against uh, the Japanese Empire, the Japanese ruled over Taiwan for 50 years. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, Taiwan bore many scars from Allied bombings uh, in World War II because it was an outpost of the Japanese Empire. Um, and previously, uh, both the French and Spanish had landed there as well. So... Uh, the food there is incredible. <laughs> it, it's, you know, uh, they, they had foodie culture, you know, years before there was foodie culture. Um, and, and it is a relatively small place, you know, uh, but it does have 23, 24 million people living there. Uh, and, and there are just so, such a long, complicated history as an intersection of East and West and empires and colonies. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a really fun place to visit. There's so much to learn. Every block is just brimming with secrets. Um, and, and the people in Taiwan are like incredibly kind. It's a real island culture where everyone helps and supports each other. You know, not necessarily during elections, but in general, if you're if you're lost and looking for a place, people will like take you there. We'll go out of their way to take you there. Um, <laughs> I mean, even the when you go to the streets, you'll you'll see like there are often like three or four different spellings of streets according to like uh, you know Taiwan's own uh, romanization. Uh, there is some pinyin uh, that's creeping in that's often used in, in China um, or, or just flat out English. When you ride the, the metro in Taipei, uh, it's, it's four different languages for each stop. Like it's in Mandarin, it's in Taiwanese, it's in English, it's in Hakka. Uh, this friend uh, of mine once joked that by the time they get to the third language, you're already at the next stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess that kind of 
symbolizes Taiwan in a way that there's so much to say about it, you know, at every stop. Now, your character, Jing Nan, has inherited a business. Um, talk about the importance of how he inherits it and how he comes to his business and how that helps helped you shape his character. Well, Jing Nan is one of these guys, uh, he's really ambitious and his ambitions stretch beyond Taiwan. So growing up, he, uh, he kind of gets a window on a greater world. Uh, and one of these windows uh, for him was music and the music of Joy Division and just imagining, you know, what else is out there. And so his plan was to, to get out of Taiwan, get away from this night market stand that his family runs and that he used to work at and to get to America and like, you know, realize his ambitions there. Uh, but unfortunately, while he's in college, uh, his, his father falls ill um, and he gets on a plane to fly back and then his mother is killed in a car accident uh, on her way to the airport to pick him up. So pretty soon he is an orphan and he's running the family business. Um, and I kind of wanted the, the main character to be an orphan uh, in the sense that Taiwan itself is an orphan. It's cut off from official diplomatic ties with, with many countries. It only has like... Uh, 22 or 23 official uh, uh, recognitions. Um, and so like his struggle is to, to come back to doing this stall, which he just really grew to despise as a child. And yet he, he does something. He flips the script. He kind of modernizes uh, the menu. He revamps a lot of the uh, entrees and uh, it becomes a bit of a success. Um, and, and in previous books, he has had brushes with the law in, in which he's come under suspicion for murders. And so there's a certain notoriety to the stand. Um, in, in this latest book, uh, it, it's uh, the first book in the series that's written in a third person. I try to do something a little different with each book. And so this was a, a little adjustment that I made for this one. And, and so I pulled the camera back a little bit. Um, so if people were looking to, to enter the series, they could at this book or the first one. Uh, that's one of the things I was going to say was that this book does a really good job of getting you into the character, understanding that background, the brushes with crime, but also building up the world so you understand what's going on without necessarily requiring the other ones. Although I will say that I'm ready to go back and instantly read them because they're very engrossing and one of the things i really like about this is that you have a great crew and uh that that he works with and also you have a great way of working in the the crime so that they're very low key i mean everything in this book is kind of like there's nobody out there who's trying to uh, conquer the world, change the world, or <laughs> they're they're trying to like maybe sweep out the stall. <laughs> it, it's a day to day kind of existence, you know. Um, I mean, you you could only take things day by day, um, and, and I kind of feel like you know Taiwan has often had to to wait for things. Uh, I remember this interview with this Taiwanese filmmaker. He said one of the great tragedies of Taiwan is that it never got to, you know, be the star of its own story. Uh, you know, under imperial China, uh, you know, people had to endure a lot of corrupt officials. And then under the Japanese, there, there was second class citizenship. Uh, uh, but but you know, lately it has kind of emerged into one of the most vibrant democracies in East Asia. Uh, and, and, you know, Jing Nan is a fan of Joy Division. And for, for me, that kind of symbolizes the kind of uh, really flat gray tones of the, the martial law era that Taiwan went through from 49 to 87. 
but just as uh, Joy Division gave way to the more fun and dancey New Order, uh, Taiwan has transitioned into a democracy. And yet echoes of Joy Division will always be with a new order. And so Taiwan, you know, the past is, is right there with you. You, you can walk through a, a night market that has like the latest foods or the latest fashions at, at the clothes stalls. And like you, then you'll come across the, the temple that the, the night market is built around. This temple is like 200, 300 years old and there's incense burning and there's you know, furious uh, Taoist gods looking down at you. And you're like, it's it's all right there together and it's it's bound. So even though you're taking things day to day, it's it's there's definitely a, a bit of an endless cycle to it as well. I love the, the religious environment uh, that you create because the people take their religion seriously enough to go and offer prayers and believe in things but not so seriously in the manner we're used to here in the u.s so and there's so many different religions and they all have these ancient shrines that they go to talk about incorporating the religious aspects of the country that's the setting into the mystery plots that you use because i think you do a really good job of taking us places and you know there's also a certain kind of uh, fun tourist feel it's like a guided tour of of taiwan by somebody who really 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 knows it (laughs) i i don't know if i really really know it i feel like i know really small piece um (laughs) but um well for I've heard a a number of stories about how sort of unique pantheon of gods and goddesses and deities has emerged in Taiwan. One of the stories is that when Japan took over Taiwan, one of the things they tried to stamp out were, uh, you know, any vestige of like Chinese folk religion, uh, of which Taoist, uh, you know, Taoism is basically probably the biggest, um, organized form of uh, Chinese uh, folk religion. And so uh, the Japanese had decreed that no Taoist gods or temples were allowed. But then people just started, you know, taking their Taoist idols and started cramming them in with the Buddhist ones. And so they say, hey, they're not Taoist, they're Buddhist. And so if you go to, if you go to many temples, you'll, you'll still find them all crowded together uh, in a way that doesn't make sense outside of Taiwan. Um, and, and yet there still is a bit of a, a demarcation, uh, like if, you know, in the case where, uh, a loved one, uh, is, has fallen ill or has unfortunately passed away, uh, you would want to be more Buddhist and the, the more austere Buddhist places are up in the mountain. Uh, there's an episode in the book where they're taking a van up to the mountains, like the more out of reach a temple is the closer it is to heaven and uh the more that uh the goddess of mercy can hear you um so that is definitely demarcated um on the other hand uh if you if you're coming to a temple and you want to just get numbers to play uh to win the lottery or something then that is something you would ask of a ghost rather than a god like if you want to win money illicitly you you wouldn't ask a god because a god would give you numbers that that you would lose and learn your lesson you would want to ask you know one of the less reputable uh uh, representatives in in the afterlife um but uh if if you go to a larger temple that that just means just shifting down a little bit you you can visit each god or deity or goddess at, at their own platform and make your specific request. Um, if they don't come through, you just, you know, move on to the next one <laughs> and find someone who's, who's actually going to help you. It's um, the food court of the gods. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> so th- I guess there is a bit of practicality built into it. Um, I mean, uh, 
you know, uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, you, you, you wouldn't ask, you know, Mary Magdalene for something and say, oh, you didn't come through. Okay, now moving on to Christ. Oh, well, this didn't come through. Well, now I'm moving on to John. Maybe John's going to help me out. You know, that, that is not something that happens. Uh, but uh, uh, Taiwan is, uh, you know, uh, I, I was interviewing this guy. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of criminals who were sources for my stories. And I said, do you actually believe uh, in gods and spirits and stuff? And he says, I don't believe in any of it. But on the other hand, I don't want to piss anything off. So, you know, I make the offerings and stuff. And it's like, wow. <laughs> It's it's not FOMO. It's like fear of you know being punished. Uh, I guess uh, a lot of foxholes <laughs> and not very many atheists. <laughs> so uh, so I I feel like people walk around with you know the strange mix of spirituality and practicality, um, and that figures into a number of you know uh, personal transactions between people. Now, you just alluded to the fact that you interviewed criminals. How did you go about this, and, and what made you do it, and, and how do you, did you interview a bunch and collect a bunch of information to be used, like hidden in the cloud that's in your mind to, to rain down upon future books, or do you go out and try to fertilize each book with, with specific uh, interviews? Well, you know, for the first book, I, I tried to remain a blank slate and uh, and tried, you know, just had interviews with a number of people in organized crime. You, you know, uh, it's like the same situation in Japan in that um, it's not illegal to be a part of an organized crime group. You just need to register that you are, you know, a member of this group. Um, many, uh, many criminal organizations own legitimate businesses. Um, I, I spoke to this journalist who works at a TV station that's owned by uh, a, a crime group and is overseen by, you know, a gangster. And I said, what is that like? And he said, oh, it's, you know, he's really cool. When we work late, he buys us dinner and everything. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> that doesn't always happen in a journalism outfit in the U.S. So I guess that is kind of cool. Um but, uh, you know, I, I know someone who works in, in entertainment uh, in, in Taiwan. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of access to uh, criminal groups involved in uh, entertainment. Um, and, and so I've, I've met quite a few through networking through them as well. And, you know, everybody in Taiwan is incredibly nice, you know, incredibly polite, uh, even the criminals. Uh, for one thing, you know, a criminal group wouldn't be allowed to exist if it didn't uh, look out for the community on its own. You know, whenever there's a natural disaster in uh, Taiwan, like a mudslide or, uh, you know, torrential rains and earthquakes, uh, organized crime is the first group on the scene with aid, with like food, blankets, clothing. Uh, and, and in a way people see the, the good that they do and they just cut through the red tape that would hamstring, uh, a government organization from helping out. Um, but in the same sense, people are really wary about the influence that organized crime has, uh, in elections. Most people do not want organized crime involved in their candidates and stuff. Um, you know, that's an issue. Wow, that that is so fascinating. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I really liked about the book, you do a great job with the characters. I mean, Jing Nang, let's talk about him. And also, um, I will, let's take the opportunity to talk some more about Joy Division and their influence on you and on Jing Nang. <laughs> well, you know, Joy Division's albums weren't officially released. They didn't have a domestic issue until like the late 80s. So the only way to get them uh, was either by importing, you know, at a, you know, probably twice the price of what a domestic album would be or like flat out bootlegs. And 
uh, you know, when I was a young teenager, uh, you know, really anxious to listen to like, you know, new music. Um, the only place that had a Joy Division album was like this music store at the mall and they, they sold bootlegs. They sold, uh, you know, this, this bootleg of unknown pleasures. Uh, and I remember picking that up uh, and, and just listening to that the first time, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing because, you know, I wrote about this in one of the books, like the, the drums didn't sound like drums. The guitars didn't sound like guitars. The bass didn't sound like a bass and the singer sounded like he was dead already. So it, it was, you know, I, I was, it was a, a chilling experience to listen to unknown pleasures the first time, you know, uh, and then like reading the lyrics later were like, wow, this is, this is nuts. And like, you know, uh, closer is, is even you know, a creepier experience, if you will, uh, lyrically and sonically and the knowledge that uh, the singer Ian Curse had hanged himself uh, before its release. Um, so in a way, uh, Jing Nan, has these experiences as well uh in terms of uh it actually uh you know he excelled in english uh in taiwan which is taught throughout school uh but he he reaches a degree where he can really appreciate uh the sort of poetry uh to ian curtis's lyrics uh and that's one of the things that entices him to leave you know apart from the fashion uh, you know, he, 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 he enjoyed wearing the trench coats that, uh, they did in the UK, but it's very hot in Taiwan. <laughs> and so he'd, he'd be like really overheated as a teen, you know, walking around, uh, in that and combat boots. Um, but, uh, you know, even though some people saw Joy Division as something very cold and mechanical, it is actually the window that, uh, it, it, the window and the ledge for Jingnan to step through to try to, to aspire to something. I remember that Bono said that, uh, you know, despite everything, uh, Joy Division's music was all about trying to find the light. Um, yeah, and Martin Hennett, the producer of the Joy Division albums, did produce some early uh, U2 singles as well. You know, one of the things I thought that was uh, so, so involving about this book was the, the crew he has. So talk about creating Frankie and Dwayne. And, and also, I, I loved uh, Nancy. He has a great girlfriend, Nancy. And Nancy's mother, oh my God, she is just a hoot and really, she she kicks butt. Oh, she does. Oh, man. Uh, Taiwanese women are very strong. You know, uh, <laughs> many men tremble in fear of Taiwanese women. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, um, Frankie the cat, he he is one of these spry older men who uh, is just sharp physically and mentally as he ever was. Uh, and he, to me, he kind of represents the older mainlander generation uh, that came over at the end of the uh, Chinese Civil War uh, and, and came to Taiwan as, you know, basically refugees with the idea that someday they were going to turn around and reclaim uh, China, you know, with the U.S.'s help. Um, it would seem to be a viable idea during the Cold War, but as the years went by, it became, uh, you know, this sort of reality that dawned on them that Taiwan is their new home. Um, it's an interesting perspective. Uh, yeah. Some... It's a very, very interesting perspective that he carries because it's an understanding and acceptance of history, but also an acceptance of the present, <laughs> which is... Uh, uh, you know, it takes a lot to accept in your mind two very different visions of how you're going to live as a refugee ready to go back and try or just as now this is your new home. Yes, yes. I, I remember seeing photos of uh, 
you know, Chiang Kai-shek's death. There were uh, old soldiers who had come over with him and they were on their hands and knees, like crying, take us back to the mainland. You know, it's just heartbreaking that they held on to that for all these years. Uh, really is. There's a really great book called uh, Last of the Wampoa Breed um, that Columbia University put out a number of years ago. And it's all the stories of the various walks of life of mainlanders who came to Taiwan. And, uh, you know, um, they often are not put in a sympathetic kind of light, um, you know, because contemporary uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, the, the longtime Taiwanese, who Taiwanese who came over centuries before, uh, kind of resent the mainlanders for coming in and taking over the government and putting them under martial law for 40 years. Um, but, but there, there was the plight of the average mainlander who came over with nothing with rags. Um, so that's a very good book. Um, okay. So, so Dwayne, uh, uh, you know, represents, uh, the Aboriginal population of Taiwan, which has been really marginalized and they were the first residents of the Island. Um, you know, every every month seems to bring another conflict in which Aboriginal lands are confiscated for development, you know, legally or illegally, um, or some uh, artifacts are uncovered uh, and uh, or, or a museum refuses to give back, you know, artifacts. Um, and it's a uh, it's a real struggle that I, I wanted to highlight a bit in this book. The three previous books were all set to uh, holidays of people of Chinese descent on, on the island, but this one is is more about uh, you know the Aboriginal. And if Aboriginals in, in Taiwan ever felt like they were a really small minority. It's to shed a light on the larger aspect of that, like all throughout, uh, you know, the Austro-Pacific, they actually have a very big family. Uh, and if you go by linguistic roots, it seems that Taiwan is one of the major areas uh, that Aboriginal languages came out of, which suggests that it's one of the starting points for Aboriginal cultures. You know, it's so fascinating. And one of the things, too, that I found really interesting about Jing Neng is how he's halfway through college and then he had to leave. But he, he's a very much a natural and he's really adapted to uh, the social media. He uses it remarkably well. And it's also it's permeated throughout Taiwan it seems like it's everywhere and, and everybody's like on their phone uh, talk about a, a small society that's been really thoroughly um, infiltrated by social media <laughs> wow uh, I can only imagine that uh, it's people voluntarily uh, subjecting themselves to uh, being monitored in the same way that martial law used to keep track of them, only it's more fun and there's more <laughs> pictures of food and uh, <laughs> hanging out with your friends. <laughs> but, uh, you know, posting where you are and everything. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, it, it's not only endemic to Taiwan, but, uh, you know, the whole social media thing is just crazy. Which is why I really appreciate that we're just talking here. <laughs> like, uh, we're, we're not on TikTok, you know, putting out a video for every 10 seconds of conversation we're having. Uh, no, no, that's uh, uh, beyond my age group. <laughs> if you're old enough to, to buy the first Joy Division in the year it came out, you're too old for social media. <laughs> Let's see. I I got unknown pleasures. I think in '85. So, mm. so but that was the same year that uh, New Order uh, put out uh, Blue, Blue Monday. Was that Blue oh, Monday? It, wait, I, it was a little bit after. I think Blue Monday was like '83 or '84. Uh, Low Life. Okay, Low Life right. was the album. 
right. a power corruption and lies was like 83 or 84. Um, oh, but for those who don't know, uh, New Order, uh, Joy Division had four members in it. And the night before they were about to take off for the first U.S. tour, the singer killed himself. But the other three regrouped uh, with one more recruit and became New Order. Uh, and, and the the music there 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 are like commonalities, but in general, uh, New Order is more upbeat and happy. I guess. Yeah, slightly. <laughs> yeah, sort of. They're still they can. They're they are these days they are, but uh, originally they had some they retained a certain amount of the dourness of of, of joy division yeah now, if you go see a new order concert there's always you know the encore is always going to include one or two joy division songs oh i've never that's something i have not done yet although uh you know i think i'm all i may have passed the the, the concert going just <laughs> 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 You'll fit in if you go see New Order. I, I imagine so. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about uh, the plotting of this book because it, it's very low key. I think you do a really good job uh, of you know bringing having the crime arise out of uh, personalized, and so the characters are. This is a very character driven crime novel. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm trying to really personalize crime. Um, you know, uh, I love that. What a great idea! That's so smart. <laughs> it's all I can do. It's all I can do. It's it's, it's 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 you know not something that I really thought much about. It's like ah, oh, I can do this, but um, one could argue that the main crime is when. Uh, this guy boxer steals this winning lottery ticket from his girlfriend. Um, and that sets the whole chain in motion that causes uh, two men to be murdered. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to keep it really personal. When, when I was a kid, our family business was running this uh, kind of low end hotel on the Jersey shore. And, it it you know even though it was a hotel and like a place of business there were so many personal stories that came through it in the summer we'd get like people young people coming down from new york who just needed a place to crash while they partied on the shore and everything but during the off seasons like the fall and and the winter we would have people move in 75 dollars a week you know living in a room with, uh, you know, no, uh, no, ki- no kitchen, just a, a two plate hot plate set up in a refrigerator. Uh, and there are these, uh, you know, broken down old people, uh, you know, living off social security who would stay with us. There are families that couldn't keep up the payments on their home and, you know, lost the home and had to move into our hotel. Um, and I would end up going to school with their kids um and so i i can definitely empathize with how how it is to to really uh pick yourself up from uh, having nothing um and uh in a way uh you know this character boxer has kind of been living like that you know kind of scraping by you know living off his girlfriend a little bit I loved Boxer, by the way. He was he was a really great character because he's, you know, he you do such a good job of somebody who like would really really like to be good, but pretty damn inconvenient to be good. <laughs> also, for him, you know, he he's he's not a real bright guy, and mm-hmm. he hasn't really been that good. But um, you know, he's living in the society like Taiwan you know, last 20, 30 years, has just accelerated. And to him, it seems that everybody's making money but him. 
So I've, I've got to find some kind of shortcut, some, some way to catch up with all these other people. Like even these people that he used to pull off petty crimes with have like, you know, one of them's gone to like computer school. And so as he's like doing really well and like cut off all relations with him, he's like, oh, I'm going to show him, you know, I'm a winner. I'm a winner. <laughs> you know, um, too, I like the way that you uh, de- deploy the police in in this book. It's it, it it's not hopefully too much like America, <laughs> although you know I I don't know. But so talk about uh, creating the police and, and the way that they work with the kind of personal crimes that your characters encounter. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you, you know, not all police, but some police are definitely, you know, working with organized crime. Um, there was this infamous incident uh, a number of years ago where one criminal group was uh, shooting up the headquarters of another group. And apparently there were a number of higher ranking police officers that were in one of the criminal groups, like sitting around playing Mahjong. And, you know, so they got busted because, because of this shootout. Um, And uh, I remember talking to, you know, one of my criminal sources uh, who said that, um, you know, there, (laughs) there are certain like karaoke bars um, in, in Taipei and uh you know multi-level ones where a lot of fights break out because i guess there are a lot of insecure guys singing songs (laughs) and when people mock them they get really angry and fights start so he was telling me that there there actually was like a huge fight at a karaoke bar uh and the next day uh the cops came to the gang's headquarters and said hey one of those guys you beat up has an American passport. So I need two people here to take the blame. And so the gang decided which two members would go down and take the blame for assault, you know, take the charge and everything. And and so that was all, you know, dealt with in a way that was to the satisfaction of the public and the police. (laughs) Because they knew they could never find the actual guys. It's like, just, just give us two people. (laughs) <laughs> and we'll just work it out. So even, even the police can be a bit practical uh, as well. Um, <laughs> there was another incident where, um, this is all on YouTube too, where uh, there was a police officer who was uh, assaulted very badly uh, in front of a nightclub. And uh, the backstory to that was apparently he had already worked out uh, with the nightclub, what sort of payments they would be giving him. But he tried to go back and try to negotiate a higher rate. And that is something intolerable. You can't change the terms of a contract, right? That's incredibly <laughs> offensive to everybody in Taiwan. <laughs> and so they, you know, the whole club and associated gangsters came out and beat the guy up. You know, um, one of the things that, that I really loved about this book you describe uh, a Taiwanese event where there's a trapeze artist. Yeah. It's really phenomenally a, a, a great description because it really creates a picture in the mind of the reader. And this reader is phenomenally unfamiliar <laughs> with, with such spectacles. <laughs> so, so talk about writing that and creating that as, you know, and it's a, a very elaborate part of the finish of the book, which I think is very nice because the book chugs along at a pace that's totally believable. And, and and then you take us to this place where, you know, it's very like entertainment spectacle, but you get us there in a, in a way that we totally believe it. So when we're seeing all this wild stuff going on and, and, you know, it's involved, you've woven the crime thread. It's really uh, fun and exciting. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I definitely made up the, the circus, but there are, uh, you know, in, in Taiwanese culture, there's a number of things that uh, you show your athletic 
prowess, uh, your acrobatic ability. Um, one of the things is that at the end of Ghost Month, the, the holiday, uh, there are contests to climb these poles and like grab these offerings at the top of it. You know, a very high wire and kind of dangerous act as well. Um, in, in terms of like the Taipei arena, it's a place that has seen performers from all over the world uh, perform at. Um, most infamously, probably Madonna. Uh, she came under fire because she brandished the, the Taiwanese flag. Um, and Katy Perry, uh, I think, ran afoul of the same offense. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's just that the arena itself represents so many things like um you know when frankie the cat comes in there he remembers the old baseball stadium that used to be there and how he used to see games there uh you know when nancy's mother comes in she's like i could be singing here i'm i can sing better than anybody else um and, and so it's just a building but they're it's already haunted by you know not by spirits but by the people who come there and see the past with them um i'm trying to 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 make that all build up to like this high literal high wire act um it, it, you know well i, I no spoilers <laughs> but it, it comes down to uh this aboriginal uh, acrobat who's trying to walk this wire uh and there are many things at stake you know i i, I like really like uh Jinang, and i'm wondering will you be uh, how you're going to follow this up and have you already conceived of how how it's going to go because one of the things as i read, read this novel i was so taken with the character that I immediately imagined his life outside of the novel, which is a good sign. <laughs> so how far is your imagination taking him outside of the boundaries of this novel and the ones that came before it? Uh, you know, generally when I write uh, one of these mystery novels, I have an idea of how it starts and how it ends. And uh, I try to... <laughs> I try to make the two ends meet. When I write, I, I go forward. And then when I'm about 75% of the way through, I start at the end and start going backwards. You know, this, you know, do not try this at home. This is just, you know, something that, you know, is particular to me. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen next. Um, I, I don't want to like, I, I'm not a plotter either. I, mm -hmm. I just, you know, I'm a real sensory kind of guy. Uh, I'm I'm trying to make things organic. You know, that's well. That's one of the things I liked about the novels. It felt very organic in a way. I guess that uh, I'll bring this one up again. It reminded me a bit of Blade Runner in the way that Blade Runner feels very organic. It's the you know the production design and the yes. way it's shot. And your novel has a similar feel to it. it. It's gritty. It you know takes place in lots of kind of unpleasant places. But the description to read the descriptions of these unpleasant places is itself pleasurable. And that's an interesting uh, contradiction in terms. So talk about uh, creating uh, pleasurable reading out of unpleasant places and circumstances. Oh gosh, I. I think there is a certain pleasure in in you know fictionally visiting places that are dangerous or unfamiliar um, or things that look familiar and end up being really dangerous. Um, one time, I was uh, <laughs> I I was you know I, I keep going back to my sourcing uh, rather than the books, but um, you, you you know I was I was meeting this guy um, who who was pretty high up in uh, organized crime. And I was meeting him outside of this public park, like a little bit after midnight. Um, and at the appointed time, um, all, you know, the, the park seemed almost deserted. Uh, but then at, at the appointed time, uh, all of a sudden, all these young men just streamed out of the park. Like they had just had 
a meeting or something. Um, and, and so I, I met my source and I was like, uh, Oh, uh, where, where do you want to go? He's like, Oh, let's go, let's go to McDonald's here. <laughs> so we went to McDonald's and, um, you know, th this McDonald's had like several different layers and, you know, I was like, Hey, can, can I get you something? He's like, uh, you know, just a, a Sprite or seven up. Uh, so I, I got him a drink. I think I just got fries and we went down to the, the lower level. Um, and so we were just sitting there talking and he was like, Oh, by the way, did you notice all those other guys hanging out like outside and like on the first floor? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, they belong to another set of the, of the, of the group. You know, I, I don't hang out with them or anything, but we all know each other. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. It's interesting. But at, as I was talking with this guy, I was like, well, you know, this could, this could be like a, a McDonald's in like Southern California, you know, in an area where there's a high Asian population, just a bunch of young Asian guys hanging out. But this is actually much different. This is actually very dangerous. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of criminal activity here at this McDonald's. Um, you know, I'm sure it's nothing that Ronald himself signed off on. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, we had the interview. Um, and uh, I, I think in the end, um, I, I got him like a, a soft serve ice cream cone. And then we just went our own ways after that. <laughs> <laughs> that and there, there was some acknowledgement yeah yeah but like um you know nothing against that mcdonald's location i'm sure it's one of the safest places to go eat <laughs> i'm sure no one's gonna try to knock it off or anything uh now you have on another series set in, in, in 1970s talk about writing that because that's a you know that that's a very different vibe are i guess i would say maybe a similar vibe but a very different setting oh yeah that's a very different time that's set in 1976 in uh, manhattan's chinatown um and there were three books in that series um that is you know the first book in that series was uh was definitely something that straddled the lines it was about this conflicted low-level beat cop who, uh, you know, in, in the opposite of a traditional mystery, he's a guy, he's an alcoholic, he's uh, angry at the world and blaming everyone else for his failures. And in the book, he has to solve himself or he's going to die. It's not like he has to solve a mystery. He has to solve himself or he's going to be dead at the end of the book. But, you know, obviously he, he did manage to make that leap uh, and went on to, to two more books. Um, and, and, you know, part of that exploration of Chinatown in the 70s, uh, you know, I'm a native New Yorker. And so I, I was there as a kid, you know, in, in Chinatown in the 70s. And so that kind of made me think more about, you know, the stories of my own family and like how they came here. And, and, and that kind of led me naturally to explore more Taiwan. You know, my, fa my father's family is long time. Taiwanese, they came over to Taiwan when the Ming Dynasty collapsed in China. Uh, and so uh, just exploring that and putting that more under the microscope uh, in, a, in a way that I hadn't seen. You know, uh, when you're exploring your own family, uh, talk about uh, how much did your parents tell you? And I mean, because I, I actually, now my parents have both passed away many years now, and mm -hmm. I really wish I had asked them quite a bit more about their history because I have, from what I can tell, looking at where they were and at history, I, I mean, they must have made some very dire decisions, but I have no clue as to why that happened. <laughs> so I, I'm curious if this is, a, a, you know, how you're able to, you know, talk to your family and maybe incorporate that into your writing. <laughs> My parents told me almost nothing. I had set all these days aside to interview them. And I don't know if they're just reluctant to talk about the past or, um, you know, something ingrained in them from like, you know, the martial law era 
you know, they didn't want to tell me anything, any personal details. And I, I feel like that's, that's a real Taiwanese thing to do. You can know somebody for decades and like, they will not tell you about their personal lives or anything. Like you eat lunch and dinner with them on a regular basis and talk about daily activities without knowing what they, you, you know, the, the personal stories. Um, because I guess such information can be used against you. Uh, I remember I, I was just trying to pry my parents, like pry stories about how, um, you know, they, their own personal dealings with organized crime or anything bad, or if they heard of anyone joining gangs or robbing places. And, you know, I, this is not ordinary family talk, I guess, but you know, you would think that they would have all these anecdotal stories and stuff, but they would tell me nothing. They would tell me nothing. And then like on the third day, I managed to pry out of them that something like my grandfather's cousin um, would steal, you know, change boxes at temples. And it was like, oh, thank you. But I don't know if I can use this for anything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very, very reticent. But I, I, I figure that people are more open to speaking with strangers who are not going to uh, replicate, you know, whatever you told them in, in fiction. You know, people are just, you know, just looking to talk. And, um, I, I, you know, once I actually have access to someone i i feel that you know after earning a certain level of trust they actually can talk you know um you know apart from criminals i talk to normal people too <laughs> <laughs> now are you working on a new novel um well i'm always working on the next taiwan book um this series will go on for infinity oh um, good but i my my writing method is to always work on two books at the same time. Mm. Um, and uh, two two years ago, my YA book, my first YA book was published. It's called David Tung Can't Have a Girlfriend Until He Gets Into an Ivy League College. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of working on something in that vein as well, uh, as well as like another standalone kind of mystery book that's still still gelling in my mind. I've been speaking with Ed Lin. His latest novel is Death Doesn't Forget. Thank you for joining me, Ed. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.